Hello, Trombone Internet. This is Chris Van Hoff, assistant to the regional manager of the International Trombone Festival. We at the festival, of course, are huge fans of the pod, and we are really excited to invite you to attend this year's 2024 International Trombone Festival at TCU in Fort Worth, Texas. Dave Begnosh is our host. We have the world premiere of a brand new double concerto for trombone and piano with the Fort Worth Symphony. We have the American Brass Quintet. We have late night jazz featuring a Latin jam session. Like everything is happening, all the cast will be there. It's the best hang in the world, and we hope to see you there. You can register for the festival still online at www.internationaltrombonefestival.com, and it's happening the last week of May. So go register. We'll see you in Texas. Welcome to the Trombone Retreat, podcast of the Third Coast Trombone Retreat. Today on the podcast, we talk to Marcus Young, band leader, composer, and principal trombonist of the Malaysian Philharmonic Orchestra. My name is Sebastian Vera, and I'm joined as always by Nick Schwartz. Nicholas, what say you? In the words of Abraham Lincoln, what's crack a my dude? Pretty sure he did not say that. Wow. We like to be historically accurate on this show. <laughs> yeah. And, and grammatically, too, because we, we definitely know how to spell principle. You know, I don't, I don't even know. I can't defend myself. I can't. I'm, I think I was kicked in the head by a donkey or something when I was a baby. Honestly, no one said anything. So I'm surprised. Yeah. So if you didn't catch it, I went on about using the right principle when you're saying like principle Tramon on your resume. And then I spelled it out. And while I was spelling it out, I thought, gee, Nick, you better not misspell it. And, I left out what the L? The I. I the think. I. So literally while lecturing people on how to spell things correctly, you spelled it wrong. But you were, you were focused on the last three letters. Like I understood. And I literally, I, I heard it four times and I even noticed. So I'm, I'm just as guilty. But um, <laughs> we, we had an amazing hang with Marcus Young. He, he's a deep soul, man. And he's a freak talent. Oh my God. And, uh, and he's one of those people that like, He's always the coolest guy in the room, you know, and it was just really cool talking about how a kid from Arkansas ended up on the other side of the world thriving. Yeah. And, and you know, I've always had respect for Marcus. He's a really awesome dude. Awesome player. He's got the sound. He really does have the sound. Q sound. Q sound. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, please subscribe. You can find us anywhere, everywhere, anywhere and everywhere. Hey, Nick, when's the last time you uh, cleaned your room? Um, oh, well, March of 2020. Well, I can tell you some people that are doing some cleaning. That's Houghton Horns. Oh. Their spring cleaning sale. They they got stuff and they got to get rid of it. So they got great deals on brass instruments, cases, mouthpieces, and accessories. And it's not quite spring yet, but we, we can pretend. We can hope. So if you want to take advantage of this amazing sale, go to HoughtonHorns.com backslash sale. All right. Enjoy the podcast with Marcus Young, spelled with a kiss. <laughs> cool. Yeah, what's going on? This is simultaneously the, the earliest interview we've given and the latest interview we've given. <laughs> it's, it's 9 a.m. where we are. And you are literally on the other side of the world, and it's what time? 10. 
10. I'm after 10 now. Yeah. 10 at night. Yeah. So but you're, you're literally in the future. But you're a, a night owl, aren't you? I, I like to do some stuff at night, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry that doesn't sound shady or anything <laughs> work of course work yeah, yeah uh-huh <laughs> then straight home straight to bed, <laughs> bed. 9 a.m yeah. bedtime <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so how are things going marcus i haven't seen you in forever man man i know it's been like i think you were out here in what like 2011 or something like that 20 i think it's it 2012 2012 yeah. yeah so yeah. nine nine years ago and a lot of yeah. stuff has <laughs> changed, you know. I not, know. T- not really, but you know, kind of. I mean, I know that. I mean, your whole section in the in the Malaysian villa is is totally different. Totally different. <laughs> How are things going over there? Speaking of being a night owl and, and working, I mean, <laughs> are any live things happening at all right now? Yeah, straight from my apartment, man. Like it's it's been. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I I kind of envy other places that have more stuff going on in some regards because we our whole music industry has kind of been put down we we can't really do any performances outside of our homes i mean there's been some a couple of people venues that have tried to do some live stream stuff which has been cool invite some audience members but by and large it's pretty much everybody's kind of stand stand low and the thing for malaysia is like we don't have as many cases obviously as some other countries but just by because of the numbers of the country, like the country's smaller. Mm-hmm. So uh, we just went into another lockdown about three weeks ago because the cases were surging. And we had like 4,000 confirmed cases in a day. So for Malaysia, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. So uh, we went back into this lockdown and uh, we're waiting to see on, I think, February, next week, I think it should be February 6th, uh, whether yeah. or not we uh, get back to medium lockdown. It's still lockdown, but it's like, it's just not as bad, you know. So what does that entail? Can you like what like with restaurants and bars? Are they are they open? Yeah. So like we, it's not like a real curfew, but it's like uh, basically everything can stay open till ten. If the cases go down, they usually push it to twelve p.m. So you can have like uh, you can go to bars, but still like they have the SOPs. You know, so you you can't get too close. Got to do the check ins and you got to sanitize and. You should wear your mask, although when people are drinking, you know, mm-hmm. people stop asking. <laughs> are they letting people perform at all when things are open like that? No, nah, man. I mean, that's that's kind of the unfortunate part is that you'll have a bar that'll be packed with like tons of people. But, you know, the rules are that we can't have any live events like concerts and anything. So the bars technically what they do is they call themselves restaurants for the time being just so that they can get, you know, everybody's got to make their money. So, but unfortunately for the live music industry, we're still kind of stuck uh, not being able to perform. Yeah. New York had a similar thing where if you were to buy a drink, you had to buy food. And so a lot of these bars that were just bars started doing things like, all right, uh, you can have a beer, but you have to buy a pickle for 25 cents. (laughs) (laughs) It's a really good one. You'll love it. (laughs) And so you just get this like, you know, Vlasic pickle on a paper napkin. Here you go. (laughs) There's dinner. (laughs) I was at, I was at a bar in, in uh, Pittsburgh that got in trouble for, for not serving enough food. So there was, there was a point in the night where they just walked around and handed out hot dogs to every table. Like here, eat this. (laughs) Eat this. We're a restaurant. Oh my god! I wish we had that. <laughs> yeah, that would be 
I wouldn't look here for uh, inspiration for performing. There's not much going on. Some, I mean, Sebastian had a gig the other day. Well, tell us so. about it. How was the gig, man? <laughs> hey, this isn't my interview. <laughs> it was weird. It was around people. Um, yeah. Mozart wow. Requiem. It was very nice. So, you know, I imagine having all this free time, I mean, it, has it been, for you, you're a creative person, you're a composer, uh, you're a performer, you, you have your hands in so many different hats. I mean, have you used this time in a productive way to to explore different things? You know, man, it's, uh, I'm going to keep it real, like, at the beginning, so we've been in lockdown since March of last year. And probably like everybody, like when it first started, it was kind of like, oh man, you know, I get to have like a, maybe a month off and just chill. Okay. You know. <laughs> but then after like the fourth month, you're kind of like, okay. And uh, the, the type of psychological stuff that you have to deal with internally, that was probably the most interesting thing for me because like, I just, I feel like I've never had to experience that before. So it, it took a little while to kind of get the engine running just because I guess like, you know, when you're performing all the time, you kind of don't realize that you're drawing from so many different sources and, you know, for inspiration that you just keep going just because you're surrounded by it. But with the lockdown, you get isolated. I mean, you can practice at home, but it, nothing really beats playing before a live audience, you know, mm-hmm. and playing with, playing with your colleagues, like playing in the orchestra. And having those moments where you stand up after a great concert and you, you know, you look at your colleagues and you're like, yeah, that was, that was cool. You know, that stuff really, uh, it definitely affected me. So what I started doing is I started to uh, get some of my band members together to do live weekly live stream shows in my apartment, just set up my home studio and, uh, you know, crammed everybody in uh, one meter apart or whichever to try to. It, w- it was a great alternative to kind of getting that that camaraderie that that music you know and then you start to feel better about things and uh that kind of leads to more stuff so i think for me it was tough staying proactive and i'm still working on trying to deal with that to be honest absolutely yeah i mean do you think it's possible that you know to to somehow put a positive spin on this that that we've all been given the gift of perspective the fact that you know we we all get professional musicians we all kind of get caught up in like the day-to-day and it's great you know we're constantly getting to do something we love we don't have time to overthink things or really go within sometimes like the situation has kind of forced us into and do you think getting it taken away like that it helps us appreciate what we've been getting to do so much more yeah totally man it's like i was actually thinking about this today it kind of reminds me of like when i was a kid and I had like this surplus of time to just practice and do stuff. And so like changing my mindset to go into that space has definitely been helpful because like you said, you have this time. Uh, so you can kind of like go into, you know, whatever, whatever your imagination will allow you to taking up new skills. I've been working a lot on audio engineering. I think, I think that there are good elements about it. I guess like for me, I just love being on stage. So that was a big, that was a big adjustment, as you say, but since this is kind of going to be the way forward for a little while, I think it is important that we stay versatile, for sure. And I'm sure many people are missing you on stage as well. So, Nick, you want to take it back a little bit? Yeah, I want to roll it back to a, a little little boy named Marcus Young growing up in Arkansas. <laughs> Mar- Marquis Young, according to Jim Marquis. Marquis. <laughs> oh, that's, yeah. that's right. That's right. Marquis Young. <laughs> Marquis. <laughs> Some messes are silent, so it's cool. 
<laughs> Mark, Mark. Mark Hay. Well, I, I want I, before we do that. I, want, I just remembered this when I was out in Malaysia playing with you. We had some guest conductor, and we were doing like a you know a week at broad a night at Broadway or something like that. Yeah. And he had a, a roster of the orchestra in front of us, and he sees your name, and he's like, Mark. Mar 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 Marquez, <laughs> and he said that is that's an interesting name. Where is that from? And you're like, Arkansas. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was dying. <laughs> I know you got a lot of these kind of stories to roast me on camera, Nick. So take it easy. <laughs> oh, I have one I'm dying to tell, and I'll, oh, I'll throw it in at some point. <laughs> But let's go back. Let's go back to uh, young Marcus in Arkansas. So, when did you get in the trombone? How did you get in the trombone? I got in the trombone. I was about sixteen. Oh, late. I started. Yeah, because I started on euphonium. I mean, That's that was right, my yeah. first my first instrument. I played euphonium. Nobody's yeah. perfect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, truth be told, my my initial reason for playing trombone, I was like, man, I could probably get some girls if I play trombone, and so I started playing, and it. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> how'd that work? Yeah, was it? Did you get more girls with trombone or euphonium? Uh, <laughs> that's, a trick, <laughs> that's a trick question, man. I can't dog the euphonium players out like that. I wouldn't like that. <laughs> <laughs> what what city? What city in Arkansas did you grow up in? I grew up in Fort Smith. Oh, uh, Fort Smith. Okay, yeah, it's like two hours away from from Little Rock. Uh, okay, yeah, because half my family's from Arkansas. I think we talked about this once in BB, Arkansas, like hour north of Little Rock. I know. I know that. I know that area too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then you, so at what point did you decide, okay, I'm going to, I want to go into music or was it, because I know that your first school was in Fort Smith, right? Univers University of Arkansas, Fort Smith, right? Well, uh, no, you, Arkansas, Tech. Tech. Arkansas, Arkansas Tech. Arkansas Tech, Tech. right. Yeah, yeah. That's um, right. This information is readily available on the internet. I know it is. I had it, I had it backwards <laughs> in my head. Arkansas uh, Tech. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of knew I wanted to have a career in music since I was probably when I started playing the trombone. I think I got exposed to like some JJ, checked out some Christian Lindbergh recordings. Uh, and I thought like, man, I could, I could have a career doing this stuff and people could pay me for it. You know, that's cool. That's probably like- Plus the girls. Me. Yeah, plus the girls. Well, <laughs> <laughs> priorities. So, but yeah, I, I started at Arkansas Tech University in uh I had a great teacher there named Dr. Will Kimball who came, he came to um, Juilliard to do a, a breeding clinic once. I don't know. Were you still there, Nick? I remember that. Yep. Yeah. He's uh, an amazing historian too, right? Yeah. He, he was really great, man. Like he, he was like the link for me as far as like coming from this, you know, from Arkansas and kind of like getting into like this big league mindset. You know, he, he played some of the first excerpts that I heard, I we had like an orchestral rep class, so he introduced me to a lot of repertoire. Uh, he got me into the Arkansas Symphony playing for a couple concerts. So he he was a big influence, and he, he also kind of convinced me to, to audition at Juilliard. I can't, I mean, I'm trying to imagine the cultural leap from Arkansas Tech to Juilliard. You, you must have been like the star of the school there, and then was Arkansas Tech more education-based? Yeah, Definitely education based. I mean, I, I think my original plan was to go to Arkansas Tech and then transfer to either UNT or Berkeley because I wanted to do, I was pretty sure I was going to do jazz after I transferred. 
but after auditioning, I mean, after my, my teacher, uh, Dr. Kimball, told me, uh, audition at Juilliard, you know, it's, it's great. You know, you can, like, do really well, you know. And surprisingly, when I got in, I was still on the fence of whether or not I should still go to, to do a jazz thing. But he convinced me that it was really important. And uh, that was definitely one of the best decisions of my life because I got to go and, you know, meet guys like Nick and study with Joe and all of our classmates. And uh, the cultural the cultural shock was tough, you know, because like New York is big and it's moved, it moves fast. It took me a few years to, to really like find my, my pace with it for sure. But it was worth it. Man, I, I, I remember you showing up. And, and, you know, it's like the, the studio is small enough that when there's someone new coming and you, you try to get the information. And so, like, the, the things that I was hearing, it's like, okay, there's this guy coming from kind of nowhere. And he's got, this, he's got this huge sound and this beat-up horn. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so I remember meeting you in one of the third floor, third floor dance rooms. And I heard someone playing. Like, you remember this. If you hear someone playing, you might just pop your head and say, hey, how's it going? You know? yeah. And so I popped my head in. And I was like, oh, this must be the new guy. You know? <laughs> so I went and introduced myself. And you were playing. And you put your horn down. Instead of putting it down on the slide end, you would turn it over and you had a, a I think it was a Bach 42 with an open wrap yeah. oh, and you used to put it down on the F slide upside down. And so that, that the, the crook in the F slide was like beat to hell. <laughs> From, yeah, man. But where, where did that start putting it down upside down? I don't know where, I think I heard from somewhere that if you put the slide, if you wait, if you uh, sit it on the slide, it'll bend the, it'll warp the slide. Yeah. And so I was like, I Oh, so let me flip it the other way. But as far as all the dents and stuff, I mean, that was that was marching band. That was... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you had like one thing that everyone who's heard you play, I think will agree is, man, you, you have the freaking sound, dude. Oh, <laughs> Q sound. <laughs> I mean, but seriously, you have like one of my favorite trombone sounds. It's just so beautiful. Thank you, man. Thank and you. Huge. It's like a, it's like a force to reckon, be reckoned with, you know? So, yeah, so you're in New York, you're dealing with, you know, the big, smelly, fast-moving city um, <laughs> that we all love and hate at the same time. You know, so you, you were there for how long? Four years? Five years? Uh, Five years. Yeah, five years. Was there a big pressure difference when you got to this, this school and, you know, having these classes every week? Oh, yeah. I tell you, like, I mean, because you said, you know, coming from being a big fish to the small, to being a small fish in a big pond. Yeah, you know, it's tough because, like, when you, when you do that, I, I think uh, a lot of your, at least for me, like, I know I experienced this, a lot of my identity was, was built into me as a trombone player. And so when you go and you see players that are better than you, you kind of have two choices is what I thought. It was like, I can be broken by it and just, like, you know, quit because Nick sounds so good and he's getting on to me about Chike 4 <laughs> or Brahms 2. You remember those? <laughs> Bra- Brahms 3, I think it was. Brahms it's, 3. I'm not proud of that. <laughs> no, it's all good. <laughs> all, but but I, I, you know what, to be honest, like, I, I loved it. Like, it was tough, but I, I loved the challenge. I think it was great for me. It got me out of my comfort zone and ultimately, you know, was, was the best, the best decision for me. So, I'm happy to have had that. So I remember, I mean, like, you know, when you showed up, I, I didn't, I don't think really any of us knew your not only passion for jazz and 
funk and things like this to play, but we had never heard you. We had never heard you do it. And then I remember you were in a funk band. Uh, we played in Milo Z's funk band. A couple other ones, like uh, the name slipped me right now. Um, but the, the the cool thing about those bands was uh, we had to kind of like dance and play. And obviously, like outside of marching band, I wasn't really uh, I wasn't really used to that. So I think that was good for me just to kind of like learn to get out of my comfort zone. Because like, you know, if you're on a stage and you start dancing and you look you look off and everybody else looks okay then it's like oh man <laughs> you know <laughs> so you know you 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 learn how to try to fit in a little bit so that was yeah because really cool. normally as as like a orchestral musician you're just like okay just sit there yeah you can kind of hide in the back but so i remember i mean that was probably like i don't know your second maybe third year in new york that that was happening mm. and you know i i remember hearing from so many people oh man like like they'd go see your, your you play with this these bands and how great you sound and how great the band sounded and that was the first time i got when that you know this was something that not only that you were passionate about but that you were really good at so then from there obviously you're going back to your roots of uh wanting to be a jazz player too when did that transition start where that became a part of your life along with classical music? I mean, like wh- where you decided, okay, this is something I want to do going forward. Man, you know, uh, I remember a, a chat with Kyle, actually, Kyle Covington. Shout out to Kyle. Mm. And Kyle, I was sitting outside uh, 309 and, and Kyle, he just said, you know what? You just need to figure out what you want to do. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, <laughs> I think so. And it, it honestly, that took me a while. Like, I actually didn't figure that out until well into moving into Malaysia because I always found this, uh, I wouldn't say pressure, but it was a challenge to try to figure out, okay, how do I, am I really this? Am I really this? Am I classical? Am I jazz? And eventually, like, I just figured I'm both. And uh, yeah. I made peace with that. And uh, once I made peace with that, I think it kind of helped me as far as my understanding of how I wanted to move uh, around and Definitely the kind of music I wanted to write. And uh, I, I like both. So it took yeah. a while. I mean, when you were when you were in New York, I mean, you started your master's, right? Can you talk about that time in your life? Because, I mean, not many. You don't see many people. It's really hard to get into Juilliard, obviously. And then they have this amazing jazz program that's almost totally separate. And you don't see many players be able to get into both. Yeah, that was a huge blessing. I mean, um, I would say the first... Years that I got there, while I was obviously doing the classical division, I was hanging, trying to hang out with guys like Mike Dees, uh, Willie mm-hmm. Applewhite, James Burton, Marshall. When he came, I got to chill with him a little bit too. I mean, like I, all the guys that were in the jazz department, I would just kind of pick their brain as much as I could about what they were learning, what they were checking out, uh, if they had any tips for me to how I can continue um, developing. So getting into the jazz program is definitely something that I would accredit to a lot of those guys because they really helped me figure out how to play or, or a direction. And then getting in the jazz program was great because I finally got to just sit in the chair and um, immerse myself with uh, the curriculum and, you know, the jazz history and uh, just being able to focus on it so that I could have a bit of a more thorough background and how I was going to play it. I think that was really helpful. It was good. And I mean, being in New York City, I mean, it gives you the perfect opportunity to like 
that first four years you're, you're studying, you know, serious classical music, but you're still in New York. So, I mean, it's the perfect place to supplement all the other things you want to do. I mean, you're only limited by the people you know and what you want to do, right? Man, facts like New York. I mean, we could do a whole chat on just New York. I mean, the stuff that went on. There. <laughs> but stand PG. Oh, you, you, don't, you, don't, you don't have to be PG. <laughs> uh, my mom is my mom is around. She don't she don't see. <laughs> no, but New York was like cool because like you know once again like being a small fish in a big pond. There's so many sources of inspiration. I mean, like you. Obviously, the top, you got Winton and the Lincoln Center that you can go check out, which is concerts. You got the Met, the New York Phil, obviously. And one of the, like, even for me, one of my first live orchestra concerts, actually, this might be my first one, was uh, seeing the New York Phil play Mahler 5, which is before our sectional that uh, we had, Nick, our low brass class. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll never forget that, low brass class. <laughs> what, what? I got, I got absolutely reamed that week. What happened? <laughs> The, that rhythm in the first moment, bum, 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 bum. For some reason, I wasn't playing like square enough for Joe, and he and he said, "Nick, can you count to four? And I said, "Yeah, I can count to four. And so he made me stand in front of the class and count to four in time, like for like what seemed like five minutes. It was probably like thirty seconds, but and uh, it was just it was embarrassing. <laughs> I think that I think that was the point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We all have some of those. No worries, man. <laughs> oh yeah, it's a, everyone's turn at some point. Yeah. You know? <laughs> man. But I mean, going going through that, I mean, you know, a lot of people can identify with having a tough teacher. But there's so many benefits to that, right? And for me, sometimes I didn't realize the benefits until later. As far as just toughening you up a little bit and making you be responsible, making you be like super on top of what you do, man. You could, man, so true. Like, there's been so many moments where, you know, I mean, you guys know, like, you're on stage and you're performing. And I always have this little voice in the back of my head, like, especially if it's like Bolero, I'm like, oh, man, I'm going to, I might crack this note. But performing in front of, like, low brass class and in front of Joe, you know, hard teachers like that, it, it kind of prepares you for every situation, you know, because you're just like, especially like you know you think you're doing a really good job but like because they're really pushing you they're they're grooming you to kind of handle that mental stress too you know that you that you deal with on stage and uh, that's been a lifesaver and it and crazily it's influenced uh my life outside of music as well you know just how you how you make decisions how you want to do things having that same mindset you know get the job done as you always say uh oh, yeah you know it's 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 good stuff man you're in the jazz program at, Ju- at Juilliard, and then you audition for Malaysia. Why? <laughs> so this kind of goes back to you finding finding your identity. You know, you, you you obviously there's obviously something drawing you to classical music still, and there's you know you're passionate about both. So how did this decision come about to take an audition halfway around the world? Man, I I honestly don't always know. Like some I. I think I've always had a curiosity for for traveling and, uh, you know, doing stuff abroad. But, you know, it's weird because I was in a really good spot in New York at that time. I felt really happy about things. But I guess the opportunity to earn some money really, you know, intrigued me at the time. And also when I went to visit Malaysia, it was a really cool place. Like, I mean, you guys have been here. 
Yeah. It has a charm I mean, about it. You know, the food from the food to yeah. the, you know. I want to talk about that for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, food, the food is so good. The weather, mm-hmm. like you got, you know, great beaches and. The weather I thought was hilarious. When I was there, I was there for a month and it was the month of February. And every single day I woke up and like back home, I have like my, my weather app and it's saying it's like seven degrees back in Pittsburgh. And then every forecast, the high would be like 96 and the low would be like 95. <laughs> It'd be like that for like the whole week. Man, life in the tropics, man. The weather, <laughs> the weather, the food. I mean, and it's it's a cool like melting pot over here too, because you've got a lot of uh, different people. You know, obviously the people that are in Malaysia, like the Chinese, the Indian, the Malay population, but then the you know Japanese, the Korean, Australian, European. South African, African, like there's so many different like groups of people that you can get exposed to in just like, like, you know, a a little coffee shop. Mm. I find that pretty cool. And that's one of the reasons why I enjoy staying here so much. Yeah, it really is. I was surprised by coming there, how incredibly diverse Kuala Lumpur is. Um, It really does have a wide representation from all over the world, which you don't see in a lot of other Asian countries, not to that extent, you know, because it's such a relatively small Asian country and it's so diverse. Yeah. And that's, uh, I mean, Thailand has it too. Yeah. Uh, Thailand's pretty crazy. (laughs) 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 Uh, I mean, it's so so cool how easy you can get to like, you know, you can take a flight for like an hour or something and it's like $40 and you're in Thailand. (laughs) And end up on this amazing beach and it costs you like $40. 80, bu- 80 bucks, including the hotel. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's like it's an alluring place, right? It, and I can't imagine, you know, if I told 15-year-old Marcus that he'd be living in the other side of the world. I mean, I, I can't imagine how much you even knew about it um, at that point. But wa- walk us through the transition to getting there. What Were you invited to come play for a little bit and then auditioned? Or how did that work? Yeah, so uh, I got invited to sub first. And then, in addition to that, they said, oh, and by the way, would you be up for coming for a year, to sub for a year? So, actually, the trip to Malaysia was only supposed to last for one year. I I did that thinking that I was going to go back to Juilliard, finish my master's, and then carry on from there. But after the one year, uh, they asked me to audition. And so, I took the audition just because they just were like, I just take the audition, I'm here. Uh, And I ended up winning the audition. And that was that was a pretty tough choice deciding not to go back to New York because I, I did miss it a lot. But you know, coming out of school and earning some cash was was nice too. You know, so <laughs> help us further enlighten people about Kuala Lumpur. It's like we said, it's very diverse. And what may surprise people is it's it's a very very modern city. It's full of skyscrapers. And there's a lot of international business going on. It's kind of this international business hub for Southeast Asia. And so this orchestra kind of described it's at the base of one of the tallest uh, skyscrapers in the world, right? Yeah. So MPO, Malaysian Philharmonic Orchestra, is uh, part of the Petronas Company, which is a big oil company, which I guess you could tie this into part of the reason why I didn't move out here, because the orchestra is funded by the oil company. They're able to take care of, you know, the musicians in a really nice way. So that's pretty cool. And then you talk about the modernization of the city. It's crazy because it changes even more like every year. I'm not quite sure what, what that is about. 
what, what, but I know there's a huge drive within Malaysia to try to like just get as modern as possible. And so they keep, you know, trying to up the ante on the technological part. So that part is pretty fun to live within that and see things evolve. And you also want to like preserve the, the, the history and the culture there and the, these little hole in the wall food shops that are like restaurants that'll blow your mind. Um, and I imagine that's, that's a constant struggle with all this new business coming in. Definitely. Well, there's this huge culture now of like these digital nomads. So they're like running around too because cost of living is pretty low to live out here. So you can park for about five, six months, really low, low cost and do your uh, tech, tech work or whichever type of stuff you do. So that probably plays a part too, I think. Wow. Yeah. When you went to Malaysia, how, I mean, how is the jazz scene there without you being there? Did you cultivate a lot of it or was it already existing in a, in a big way? Yeah. I mean, not just jazz, but kind of what you do, which is kind of a mix of things, you know, a mix. <laughs> I'm yeah. still trying to figure out what that sound is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, the scene has got a lot of great musicians and I think one of the big adjustments for me was coming from New York where everything was, you know, very, traditional or you know there was there was a there was a sound that was in the jazz scene for sure and an openness too but there was definitely like a strong presence of like straight ahead jazz uh whereas here I, i'm not sure why but that presence isn't as strong here people definitely do it but it's not something that people like really really do but what they do happen to do a lot of they play a lot of different styles um, the musicians over here are super versatile, you know, and that's probably why, or probably played into how I developed my sound, because just, I tried to come here and kind of force uh, a sound on the uh, community at first, which was a huge learning experience, because, you know, you really learn the value of, of, of teamwork and how important it is that when you're playing in an ensemble you know, everybody needs to feel like they're a part of it and that they have a, an important part to play. So I had to kind of adjust how I was uh, running my bands to trying to think more of along the lines of like, okay, I have these set of players. What is the best situation that I can create for them to give me the best that they have to give with music? And once I started flipping it like that, then I saw more interesting stuff happen with the music as per trying to do it one way. And that, that, was, that was a learning experience for me because it made me also want to feel like, okay, how can I be more versatile in situations so that I can always give to a situation even if it isn't my, my first option? And I think that as a musician, that helped me develop probably an even more stronger appreciation for, for the symphony. Mm. One of the beautiful things about living here is that we're still, on the, we're still kind of building the soil for what's to come mm. with Malaysia. So Yeah. <laughs> but I mean that's really that's really cool. You were you were saying how New York, you know, New York has this very, very established culture of of jazz and music making that when you go to a place that's like you said, fertile ground, it's kinda opens up a lot of possibilities because it's kinda like what you make of it. Right. And there's all these talented musicians and I was blown away by the level of talent there. And that it's like an opportunity, right? You can just do it. I mean, there, there's some level of, like you were saying, figuring out the audience, figuring out your other musicians that you're playing with, and not just 100% just doing whatever you feel like all the time. But there, there's some 
bigger flexibility there, I'd imagine, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's the same like playing in a in a with some good musicians in an orchestra or a band or whatever. Like sometimes it's your time, and sometimes it's not your time. So making everybody have a good time at the same time is is like that's the gig, you know. And I, like I like I was expressing, like I think playing in orchestra after that experience helped me really appreciate it more. I don't know why, but like it helped me be able to hear like, oh, the oboe is doing this. How do I support that? You know, I can't just be, you know, playing loud all the time. Like I have to kind of figure out how to make artistic statements in all all aspects of music. Mm. Yeah, I like that. I mean, maybe it's just per- as simple as perspective, you know, just being able to step away from it and look at it and, and analyze it, let it sink in a little bit, you know? Mm. Yeah. In your earlier days there, man, you and uh, it was it Tony Wise and Zach Bond put out some ridiculous videos, these low brat, these epic like... <laughs> adrenaline <laughs> low brass videos playing in this first of all the hall is beautiful and it really sounds is. sounds great and you guys just sounded incredible together what was it like in those early days that was that was really fun man we got in trouble all the time <laughs> 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 i would say the, the orchestra still kind of bruised from those that period but <laughs> we're, just playing, we're just playing too loud yeah, we had there's a couple of concerts. I remember there was a there's a Copeland three and there's a Bruckner oh. seven that those are both ripe for it too. <laughs> yeah, just I mean it was like we had just got here together and we were all excited. So we would we'd have like sectionals all the time, made sure we were set to go, you know, more than we needed to be. But it was it was really fun. Like it was like kind of like being back in school and, and playing with, with, you know, the guys, you know. Yeah. But getting paid for it. But getting yeah. paid for it. <laughs> yeah. And that's a that's a hell of a section. I mean, also with Brett down on the bottom. Yeah, Brett's a silent killer, man. He's got that yeah, huge he's sound. <laughs> fantastic tuba player. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> got oh, it was a great time. We got in trouble all the time. <laughs> that's hilarious. My my favorite random rule about the hall is because it's a Muslim country in a lot of ways, and it's it's the the company's owned in that way. And so you're not allowed to wear open-toed shoes and you're not allowed to wear shorts and so i i made the mistake once of because you know it's really hot and humid all the time and you know you're you're dripping in sweat and you're walking into rehearsal and you know i had shorts on and i I called them the pants police because the guards will quickly be like nope sorry you gotta gotta change yeah they're pretty tight on those rules i mean i guess it's because it took me a while to kind of make peace with that too but you know orchestral music this this whole culture, it's still fairly new to the to the community, so they're trying to establish it in a way you know that people kind of pay respect when they when they come, which is is a good thing for the art because like you know for us as the musicians here, uh, when people speak of the ensemble, it's usually with some some respect. I'm, I'm not saying that that's because of the no pants rule <laughs> exclusively, but I, I, I get what they're trying to do. I have a pretty exclusive no pants rule. <laughs> this I know. <laughs> it works. It works really well during the pandemic. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't know if I've done a podcast interview yet where I'm not wearing sweatpants. I've I've worn sweatpants pretty exclusively since March. Yeah, um, me too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I remember uh, showing up for rehearsal my, my first day in, in malaysia 
And I mean, yeah, the walk there, you're just sweating your ass off because it's so freaking hot. But then you get inside of the mall leading up to the, because the, the hall we should say is it's in between the Patronus twin towers and in between there is a mall and everything. Talk, talk about how epic these malls are. I mean, that, malls in Asia are amazing. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, like eight stories. And... and also the food courts are like real deal food. You yeah. know, it's not like, it's not like uh, you know, Panda Express like you have here. <laughs> it's like real freaking food. And uh, are, you, are you hating on the Panda right now? I'm hating on the Panda, dude. How dare you? But you walk in through a mall all the way to the back. And then there's the concert hall in the back of this mall. First of all, it's like a million degrees outside, but then inside it is freezing cold yep. everywhere. Yep. <laughs> so, so actually that once you get inside the, the no shorts thing doesn't bother you so much because it is cold in there. I remember practicing at night in the hall and there being like a fog in the hall. Oh man. From, from, humi- from humidity. You know what I'm talking about? I got a great ghost story, so I don't know if it was the fog. I don't know. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. From the, from the hall inside the hall. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> what happened? It's like the Phantom of the Opera. There was a um, there was a night I went in to practice about two a.m. and I'm, ah. I'm doing my my thing, you know, night owl. And I see this figure. You know how the hall is set up, where you if you're on stage, you can see that booth, that recording booth in the back. Yeah. And so I was on stage practicing, and I swear, I see this like head of this woman come out of the wall. And I, I I had to look like a couple times. I was like, "Is this? Am I tripping? Like, what's going on?" And so I'm sitting there, I'm watching this, and I'm seeing this pop up. Like, do this, come back, do this again, come back. And so once I felt kind of weird enough, I packed my bags and I went out to, secu- to the security guard. And I was like, "Hey, man, like, is there a is there somebody in the hall right now?" And he was like, uh, "No, everybody's been home." And I was like, "Are you sure? Because I keep seeing like somebody in you know in the hall." He's like. Like, oh, it's uh is it a lady? And I was like, Yeah. He's like, not human, right? And I was like, Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so so then he was like, Yeah, yeah, there's like a family that's like that like circulates around regularly, you know, from a long time ago. So the crazy thing was I posted this on my Facebook the next day, and everybody in the thread knew knew about this ghost. <laughs> I have goosebumps. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, everybody knew, except for me. She dug your play in it. <laughs> Mozart Requiem. <laughs> I don't even know what to do with that information, Marcus. Oh, my. I like how the security guard was like, oh, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah the ghost. It's, it's normal. Smart. <laughs> now, they have a lot of spiritual uh, stuff over here. So, it's, it's I mean, for, from Malaysians, it's pretty common. But it wasn't to me. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I'd be like, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm done with this. <laughs> You're like no more 2 a.m. practice yeah. yeah no i don't do that anymore <laughs> <laughs> I'm done at 10. i remember when i was there uh we we were out eating lunch and he said yeah you know like my neighbors are getting after me for practicing <laughs> and i was like really it, it, and you were like yeah you know i wasn't playing that loud i guess it was kind of late and I, I said what time was it and you're like it was like 3 a.m you know yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah i'd be pretty pissed too man <laughs> Yeah, that was that was uh <laughs> Yep. <laughs> Cuz most people are living in like well a lot of people are living in these like high-rise apartments buildings, right? Yeah, I mean that's that's kind of the thing. Although when I left the orchestra, I did live in a a big house. 
And this man, you can get. I got this six bedroom house, two stories. Six bedrooms. It's like six bedrooms, two stories with my partner at the time, and we paid not even not even five, maybe five hundred bucks a month. Wow, massive. Where what? Where was it? It was about fifteen minutes outside of town, but still close to a big shopping mall, so it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, money can go so far there, right? A lot of people had like. Sometimes live-in maids or, like, everyone could have someone that just comes and cleans their place every day for pretty cheap. Oh, yeah. You can get a maid to come. Well, I mean, yeah, like, get, get maid. The, thing, the cost of living here is really affordable. So, that's part of the reason also why I enjoy staying here because you can do a lot of things for a very low cost and still get pretty good quality for it, you know, most, for the most part. What's your favorite part about living there, like non musically? Can't say that on camera. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I still remember. You I still sp- remember because, like, you know, you hang out with Marcus there, and everybody loves Marcus. He's he's a guy that walks in the room, and everyone's excited he's there. And I guess we were at a place, and there were some like beautiful women in there. I mean, that's normal yeah, there. Tell us about that, John. Who the and, girls? And do you remember? We don't need to. We don't need to go into great detail there. But <laughs> I still remember one time you were like talking to me, and I was like, I, you know, I was some saying something like, I don't even know what to say, like you know. And you were like, you know, just you know, you know, what works for me. Just you just go up to one of them, and be like, hey, you on Instagram? <laughs> <laughs> oh man! <laughs> I'm like, what? What? What is that? He's like, I don't know why. They always get really excited. <laughs> I might, well, we might you know, be I, drinking, bro. <laughs> let, let, let's, let's break it down. That was definitely happening. If you're a Marcus-looking guy and you go up to a person and ask that question, that you're gonna do well. if you're a me, if you're a me-looking guy, it's not going to work so well. Maybe some pepper spray. I don't know. No, you got charm, <laughs> Nick. I've seen you charm your way into things. Yeah, yeah. I, I okay. Now I can tell my favorite Marcus story. So we. There might have been some beer involved. There might have been a lot of beer involved. And we were at Big Nick's, if you remember Big Nick's. Oh, uh, yeah, um, of course. So this was like a pizza place, but they also had an incredible happy hour. One dollar Miller Genuine Drafts. And oh, so we nice. were there, and it was probably, I don't know, one in the morning, something like that. And this group of girls walks in, oh. and Marcus is immediately like, all right. And... He immediately starts in and he, he leads with, hi, ladies, my name is Marcus, spelled with a kiss. <laughs> <laughs> Do not tell me that that worked. Bro, you just... It didn't. It didn't. Threw my line out on camera. Golly. <laughs> no, I can't use it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well i think i made it not work because when you said that i started laughing like crazy killed my, killed my game. <laughs> i killed it i killed it i wasn't a good wingman i was taken at the time so i wasn't i wasn't participating no nah, man those new york times are great i actually remember i don't know if you remember this but you and dana were the were you guys the first on my 21st birthday you guys took me out to drink beer and that was the first time i think i got drunk on beer <laughs> yeah Oh, wow. thank you, Nick. I'm not surprised. <laughs> I'm not surprised I was there. Um, <laughs> oh, Dana. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Dana. Nick was the first for a lot of people. Yeah, I have, I have that influence. <laughs> Indeed. Oh, we have, we have a question. Someone yeah. wrote in. Brian Hecht wanted to ask you. Oh, what's up, what's up Brian Hecht? Basebone Brian. Yeah. He he wanted to ask you what your biggest influence musically and creatively was. Ooh. 
Man, there's so many. Oof. There, man, there's so many. Trombone-wise, I mean, Joe, for sure. All the jazz greats, JJ, Slide, uh, Curtis Fuller. I, oh, that's tough, man. I I don't know. I like so many things. That's probably my problem. Because I, 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 I could draw from so many things. Like, you know. That's not a problem. That's awesome. Well, I mean, like like when, um, like hip-hop. I like a lot of hip-hop. So I went through a huge, like, Nas, uh, Notorious B.I.G. phase, Jay-Z, Earl Sweatshirt. Went through an EDM phase. I don't know. I like a lot of stuff. Wow. Rap, rap the EDM. That's uh, yeah. <laughs> that's offsides. <laughs> Dude, they used to have these. Uh, we can't do them now, but they had this really amazing festival they used to run here called Future Music Asia. I think it was an Australian-owned festival. And uh, they bring all these huge EDM acts. And that was, the first, that was just such an eye-opening experience for me because I saw the first time, like, just thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people just tripping over music. And I was like, wow, music can do that? Like, I want to do that. That's cool, you know? Yeah. It was really amazing to see that. Did you ever get into, like, the, the microtonal EDM stuff? Not so much. Not so much. But, I, yeah. We, when you do that in headphones, it's pretty trippy because it's warping. It's, it's very, very crazy. I dig that. I like the journey. Where, where did Q sound come from, the name? <laughs> it's, uh, it's kind of a combination because of, like, some of my friends would call me Q. Because of the Q, the name. Actually, because guys like Nick would say, oh, you have the sound, the sound. So one day somebody asked me to put together a, a band name out of gig, and I was like, uh, Q sound. And that was it. It works. It works. So tell, tell us about all the different bands you play in and the, the recordings that people can find, obviously, on like your YouTube channel, Instagram. So I was first quite, quite active with a, my former band called Basement Syndicate which you can find on YouTube and Spotify and all the places. And then I departed from that to start my Q-Sound project, which you can find on YouTube and Spotify also. Just Q-Sound Music TV is my YouTube channel. And um, now I'm actually working on a new, a new EP that I'm producing. And it's going to be a little bit different. I'm not actually playing a lot of trombones in it, which is weird. But I'm playing some trumpet, which is also weird. Yeah. But it, it's just kind of like a, a bit of an experiment this project just to see uh where i can go musically and uh hopefully people like it to be out in the spring cool awesome cool we'll de- we'll definitely share all that stuff once it's out do you use one of those big like uh those wycliffe trumpet mouthpieces that has like the the trombone <laughs> rim but like a shank of a trumpet have you seen those yeah wycliffe <laughs> wycliffe uh yeah no just normal like trumpet mouthpiece for me actually even the trumpet my uh I got it from a friend who was closing down her restaurant and it was actually just like a table piece. And so as she was closing, really? yeah, she was closing it down and she's like, uh, I'm going to sell this trumpet. And I was like, no, no, give it to me. And she's like, okay. And so she gave it to me and that was, that's how I have this trumpet for the last seven years. Yeah. I have a trumpet sitting in my closet that I'm just like, <laughs> someone had it and they, they didn't want it. I'm like, I'll take a trumpet. Free trumpet. You know? <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do with it. Just like I have a theremin in my closet. Anyways. A few rapid fire questions we we typically ask at the end of interviews. What what was what's been if you had to pick one like a single musical experience that was the most memorable? This is a tough question sometimes, but it's one that really besides getting to perform next to Sebastian Vera, <clears throat> yeah, Mahler Seven. Like, anyway, that was cool, man. I had a time. <laughs> yeah, it was great sitting next to you here. You play the euphonium solo. It was incredible. But that was good. Besides that concert. <laughs> What what's your most memorable? Well, besides that one, 
man. Definitely playing with the New York Phil. That that uh, chance encounter where the Don, Don, Don got snowed in or something, right? Oh, so, yeah, that's right. He, he got, got snowed he, in. He got and snowed uh, in. we had literally just played on Held and Laban with the Juilliard Orchestra. I think like maybe a few yeah. weeks before. Yep. <laughs> you remember that big air ball I had on that? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. I think I might have given you shit about you that. Gave me, you gave me some for that. <laughs> I deserved it, though. I deserved it. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. I, I deserved every bit of that. <laughs> but uh yeah we were i think i was playing rose shoes with chris reeves one day that day and then and uh jim called me i was like yeah can you come in like 30 minutes and i'm like can you feel ask me to play in 30 minutes okay okay yeah sure sure you know and uh you know when you grow up you think you know idolizing these guys like it's obviously an honor to be on stage with them but the best thing that i remember was how warm they were and how um inviting they were when i got on stage and supportive and just really made me feel like great you know and they didn't have to do that they could have been like any other kind of way you know but they were really warm and supportive and that that impacted me a lot as a musician because you can be great and also be a good person you know yeah so uh, wait what <laughs> yeah it's, it's possible man. <laughs> hold on <laughs> wait a second yeah what what would you tell your eighteen year old self right now? Ooh, hey, that's a tough. I would probably say trust your trust your instincts. There's a lot of times I feel like we, you know, as we're kind of progressing through life, we kind of undo a lot of unlearn a bunch of stuff, and we find out that we were kind of right all along. And I think that that's been something that has happened for me. Where I guess as an artist, as you try to like you know perfect your craft, it's always important to remember who you are and why you do it. And uh, I think that it's, that was something that I had to remember over time. So I would tell myself just like whatever you're doing, just remember why you do it and, you know, stay, stay in the, in the pocket, stay in, in the, in the current for what you're doing it for. I love that. <clears throat> Good. I got one more. What's for, for young trombonist, what's one musician or you could even make it a trombonist or just brought it out to a musician that you think that they should be, that they should hear if, if they haven't heard yet. Ooh, man. Jazz, classical, whatever. That's cool. That's, that's tough because like the internet provides you so much, so much surplus of stuff. That's the problem though. Yeah, I think true. people get overwhelmed and then they'll just never like go find this person sometimes. If I had to pick one, I would say Wynton for me. Cause Wynton was, okay, Wynton was one of my first inspirations for sure. When I saw him, I think it was his classical album with the Carnival of Venice. Yeah, uh, and I That's really great. yeah that was I picked that up at a record shop one day, and I was like, "Oh, this looks good." I put it on, and I was like, "Yo, this guy played a high E flat at the end of Carnival of Venice, and he's triple tonguing and doing all this stuff. Like, I need to practice, <laughs> you know? Like, I can't, you know." So I think Winton, what he's done, music obviously for 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 music is definitely he, he should you should check him out. Well, I mean, that's a, that's a, I think that's a perfect example because of who you are too, because you straddle that line like he does too. Like, you know, he, he can play jazz and obviously, I mean, that's what he's most known for, but then turn around and put out like one of the greatest trumpet CDs ever, like classical trumpet CDs. I mean, that's rare air to be able to do that, you know? And you, you, you are able to cross those lines so well that most people aren't, aren't able to do. He's a goat. <laughs> I like to ask this question of uh, all our guests. 
what is something that musicians can do more of in their studies? This is obviously a player to player thing, but I would say probably just circling back to just like take a moment and just write down like what is the music that you grew up listening to? Because, you know, we learn so much through osmosis and a lot of times those sounds are what's going to come out when we play anyway. So it wouldn't hurt to kind of take a, a, a conscious look at that music. And for me, in my case, like I, I thought it would be good to learn more in depth about R&B, hip hop, uh, gospel music, in addition to the stuff that I was trained to do at school. Uh, and it helped me deepen my understanding for my voice as far as like when I play. And that stuff actually does translate because like you can, you know, if you play like Dvorak 9 and they get to the, uh, the third movement. Like you could flip it like that. And so like that, that information that you took from that other influence can be helpful. So for, for a lot of trombone players, what I would say is just like, you know, don't, don't uh, forget the stuff that, that you grew up listening to. I mean, it can be anything. It doesn't matter. But the key is just to own that, own that influence, you know? Mm, I like that answer. That's great. Yeah, that's a really good answer. Own that influence. That would be a good quote. <laughs> Sometimes, like, you interview the people for the podcast and we need to get, like, promotional materials and, like, they'll have, like, one picture, like, that their wife took, like, 10 years ago and... Your Instagram, man, you have such amazing photography oh, on there. Thank you. You've gotten to work with a lot of great people, it looks like. Yeah, there's a lot of talented people easy. out here. Q, Q Sound Music, that's what it is, right? IG is Q Sound Music. I just launched my Q Sound band page, too. You can follow that if you want. There'll be a lot of stuff coming up over the next few months, so definitely stay tuned for sure. We're, we're cooking. Awesome. 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 Yeah, appreciate that. Well, Appreciate you coming on, man. Yeah, thank you. I know it's... Uh... Well, it's just starting to get late for you, or maybe it's early for you. It's all right, know. man. He's about to go practice. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to practice. I got my, uh, my warm-up right here. So. Oh, <laughs> oh, nice, dude. Yeah, some apple juice. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, thank you guys for having me, man. It's been a pleasure to catch up with both of you. You know, it's always great yeah. seeing you. Thank you. Keep doing this podcast. This is great. You guys are doing some good stuff. Oh, man. Thanks, man. Thanks, man. Sebastian. Yes, sir. That Marcus Young is just a, a suave gentleman. He's a very suave gentleman. He's definitely, he's one of those people you're talking to and you're like, man, this guy's way cooler than me. <laughs> yep. And he's, he was literally in the future. Like we were talking to someone in the future. He, we should have asked like our fortunes or something. Well, we should have interviewed him like a week ago before the, before the Powerball was hit and we could have got the numbers. Oh my gosh. We got to use this podcast to like, you know, win the Powerball. (laughs) Step one, set up a podcast. Step two, step three, billionaire. That's how it works though. I mean, all podcasters are are at least like multimillionaires. I'm pretty sure. Yep. Yep. That's why everyone does it for the money. Kind of like trombonists. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, we had a great talk with Marcus. I mean, I I haven't seen Marcus in... I mean, it might have been last time I was in Malaysia, 2012. We've talked a little bit here and there, exchanging messages and stuff. But generally, yeah, that was the first like long talk I've had with him in forever. 
I knew he was doing well, but it's is great to hear how well he's doing. He's really established a lot of amazing things out there. Yeah, it's cool seeing, like, I think he exemplifies someone who just kind of follows how his life unfolds and, and follows an opportunity. And at the same time, he's he knows himself or he's discovering what he wants and he's open-minded. And he's just like, you know what? I ended up here and it's actually kind of awesome. And I'm doing my thing, and I love it. So, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, I always, uh, you know, it's when his life was unfolding from looking from the outside, it always seemed like every decision was like a conscious, like, okay, well, you know, in one year I want to be in the master's program doing jazz at Juilliard, where, and then I want to win an orchestral job, and like all this stuff. It seemed like it was all part of some plan he had, and um, it, you know, it's kind of actually. Re- refreshing and reassuring to hear that like those things that happened to him kind of happened from the opposite standpoint. Like he was like, well, this seems, yeah, like you said, this seems like a great opportunity. Let me see what happens. I'm going to flesh it out. And you know, being a great player, great guy, the world's your oyster. And you know, I mean, we both had the opportunity to go play in Malaysia. I was there for a month in February, which I was very happy to escape Pittsburgh winter. I was there for about three weeks in March. So I know the feeling. (laughs) Yeah. And you know how it's like, what it's like, it's like they put you up in this, you know, amazing hotel and you're literally on the other side of the world. So most everyone, you know, is asleep when you're awake. So for me, I mean, it was kind of tough after a while. I mean, it was incredible experience, but you know, you, you miss people after a while and there's like this short window when you can try to get a hold of people but I mean, that was tough. The, the music making was really cool. The food, I mean, food t- talk about the food for a second, like the famous street and everything. But there's, yeah, there's a, like a night hawker street that it, by at night, it just transforms into like food fest. And there's all these different stalls with, you know, specializing in chicken wings or stingray wing or like uh curry or some noodle dishes or soups or, you know, something like that, but you can kind of hop from stall to stall. You can do that in a lot of places in Asia, but what I found so amazing about both Malaysia and Singapore is because it's such a melting pot, like going back before, um, the modern modernization, you know, it was primarily the Chinese, the Malay and the Indians that were there. And they've like since those cultures have been coexisting for so long, like the, there has been like secondary cuisines that have come out of it, like Malay and Indian mashup cuisine. And you know, it's freaking awesome. And it's, it's weird at first, like eating hot soup when it's like a million trillion degrees outside, but they're right. When you eat hot and spicy things, it makes you sweat. That cools you down. You feel good to go. Jalan Allure. Jalan Allure. That's right. Bukit Binteng. Yeah. Is the street I had to look up on my Instagram? Um, yeah, it's one. Of the, it's considered one of the most famous food streets in the world. Just yeah, you can experience everything. And it, if you go to a place like this, you got you got to take. You know, if you don't consider yourself an adventurous eater, I mean, take a chance because you know it's going to be such a unique experience and such a, a a way to understand the culture in a different way. And most things, if you try it a few times, you might like it. They 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 are famous for that. What's that fruit that smells terrible? Oh, durian. Ugh. Oh my durian. god. Yeah, it, t- it tastes like rotten onions, and it smells like if you poured kerosene into an old gym bag. 
That that doesn't sound like a pleasant smell at all. Some people love it. I I mean, you know, it'd be one thing if it smelled that way and then you tasted it and it was like, oh wow, like tropical brightness. And, and it's like it's like this was one of those things. It, it tasted exactly how it smelled, which is a terrible thing. You know? Yeah, it's one of those one of those things that people like to do, like to be adventurous. Like, oh yeah, I had durian, and I'm like, okay, I was like, maybe I'll try it. And I'm, I walk by the booth, and I'm just nope. Yeah, you know, you just get one whiff, and you're just like, sorry. And it there's some compound in it that makes you burp more, and so all day you're like burping like horrible like rotten onion burps. It's just the worst. It sucks. I I some people love it. For people from Southeast Asia, I know you love it. Not all of you, but some of you do. And that's great. There's a lot of things I love that other people don't love. So, Did, did I ever tell you my adventure just getting there in the first place? Didn't you miss your flight or something weird like that? Well, that was going to Bangladesh. That was a whole other adventure. Oh, don't remind me. <laughs> Ugh, my Uber driver just didn't show up before like a 30-hour travel day. But yeah, Malaysia, obviously, look it up on the map. It is very far away. If you could travel straight through the world, it might be a little faster, but wait, wait. unfortunately we can't do that yet. Isn't the earth flat, Sebastian? Not that kind of podcast. <laughs> so, you know, I, I flew, I think I flew Pittsburgh, Detroit, Detroit oh. to Tokyo, mm-hmm. which is not short. It's pretty cool. You go over Alaska. Um, it's, it's the middle of the night and you see these little lights coming up from really small towns in very, very Northern Alaska. Super cool. I land in Tokyo, never been to Japan before, but I had a quick connecting flight to Kuala Lumpur. And in Japan, you know, they're like super organized, super on time with everything. And the flight landed, I would say, 15 to 20 minutes later than scheduled. And there was these two sweet little Japanese ladies waiting for me at the door. I walk out and they're like, hello, John Sebastian Vera. I'm like, yes, sorry, that's a terrible accent, but that's kind of what they sounded like and they're like we have you have you do not have enough time to make your next flight we have booked you for another flight and i'm like really like there's like still like an hour like i have plenty of time and they're like and there's just no point in even arguing See, they're like please follow me i'm like okay and they already had a ticket for me and everything it was great customer service yeah um and so i'm just following them through the airport I don't really know what's going on. I stand in this line. I stand in another line. All of a sudden, I'm like, wait, I think, am I am I going through customs right now? I think, I'm, okay, wait a second. Why am I outside? Whoa. Okay. And they're, they're like, stand in this line. And I'm like, what, wait, what, what am I waiting for? They're like, you will get on this bus and go to other airport. Your flight is in eight hours at the other airport. And I was like, okay. And they're like, I was like, how long is this bus ride? Oh, like one, one hour, 30 minutes or yeah. 45 minutes. You probably flew into Narita and Narita is way the other side of town from the other airports. And it was just like one of those things. It's like, okay, can't control it. Cool. I'll get to actually get to see Japan for a second. Um, but it was like midnight and I was pitch black and I didn't, it was a boring drive. So I didn't really get to see anything. Get on the next flight, wait forever. Um, another eight hours, get on that flight, which is another eight hour flight. I think the first one's like 12 and then I finally get there. And since I was so far, so much later, I had to go straight to rehearsal from that flight. No, thank you. And if, and and, you know, it's, it's 12 hours ahead. So you literally, it felt like the middle of the night. I was delirious. You're just kind of like sleepwalking through the rehearsal. And then I went back and slept for three days. 
Yeah, when I was when I was there, I I realized the day of my first concert that I hadn't been able to stay up past seven p.m. on any of the nights, and I was like, "Yeah, how am I going to play this concert?" So I just drank a bunch of coffee and I said, "You know what? The jet lag ends tonight." And I I went out with uh, the trombone section and some other people, and we ended up having Indian food at like three in the morning. It was awesome. So I beat the jet. You have lag to fight down. it, right? Oh my god, I had to fight so hard. I was so tired. That first night's so important. Like you gotta fight for that first night as much as you can. Yeah. Otherwise, I, it's a slow. I have uh, going going to Asia is tough. Coming back is even harder. The time the oh the jet lag coming back is so freaking brutal from Asia. Yeah, I, I last time I was in Asia, two thousand sixteen, and it took me a solid week and a half to get over that. Yeah, coming back, I got sick for sure. Your body's just not used to it. Lots of water. Lots for of water. when we get to travel again in in twenty twenty three. Yep. 2023 exactly well i want to get back to the topic at hand mr marcus young marcus yeah we we hung out a lot in college we played we played a lot of like duets trios quartets played section stuff of course you know he's just he's just an awesome dude awesome awesome talent really yeah i i miss the dude i wish i could play with him more but you know like we just described being on the other side of the world we don't get so many opportunities to be together you know you want to get to the questions let's question it up sebastian we should have question music by the way hmm that's a you want to make some Ooh. Pick it up, dee, 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 dee. Just pick another part of the first. <laughs> 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 actually, that could be like question sounding. Yeah. Okay. So this is from Dan Morris. Thank you, Dan. How you doing? Thanks for your message and reaching out. This is a really good question. We'd love to. Oh, that's your. Re- I was reading your response. I am so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I just got that. Yeah. That's so funny. Yeah. I was like, I was thinking, this is a really good question. That's kind of vain to say about your own question. <laughs> <laughs> so I think you should leave that in. Uh, I started, Sebastian had responded to Dan saying, hey, we'll get to it in the next, uh, basically saying we'll get into in the next podcast. So Dan, here's your question, not Sebastian's response. Greetings. Listen to the Lars episode. He talks of the Japanese student who was given permission to play the piece how he wanted. In that vein, do you advocate assigning specific pieces to students, or do you choose a set of works that might work a, a target area and allow them to choose the one that speaks to them? Oh, that's a good question. Thanks, Dan. You know, personally, you, you gotta, you have to understand the standards when you're in school. I mean, it's, you have to spend some time with the standards, especially when, if you're going down certain performance tracks, I mean, you're not going to get to avoid the David, for example, but people that know me know that I'm also, it's really important to me to, you know, explore, support and celebrate the music of our time as well. So I think if you can, make sure there's a fundamental understanding of the standards, make sure they have an understanding of what's important. And then using, I, I'm a big fan of using music to tackle things, um, areas of your playing that you've been scared of, right? Like, you know, I think I avoided the Tomasi like the plague when I was younger. Cause I, you know, I was scared of playing up in that range, but when I finally forced myself to do it, it helped develop that range so much and a million other things like that. What do you think? Um, I think that, uh, you know, when it comes to being, uh, 
a teacher. I'll, I guess I'll approach it from that side. I try, you know, I, I try not to be too cookie cutter with my approach with anything. When I teach, I try to cater to the needs of the students, both what they need to work on material wise and also kind of how they need to work on it, depending on their learning style. You know, not everyone learns the same, not everyone's yeah. needs are the same. Um, so I, I guess a little bit of both, I might present like the options I find to be fitting of like what they need to be working on. Um, I don't just say work on this unless it is, you know, there are sometimes like, I mean, it's not again, not cut and dry. Like at some point, if you're a bachelor's student, you're going to, as a base role player, you're going to have to learn New Orleans. You're going to have to learn Lebedev concerto one movement and the concerto Allegro. You're going to have to learn, you know, if you haven't set sail with barnacle bill, you're not living. <laughs> I guess I'm not living. I've never set sail with him. You've never played Barnacle Bill? No. Young man. You know, I send you back to school. I, I don't think I don't think I ever played it. My I, I never played any show pieces. Next retreat. Um nah, nah. Jim Markey did it too well at the last one. I think I think we'll leave it to him. Um yeah, you know, I, I try to I try to I try to give them what what they need, but not just force feed, you know, make them think about like because if you have a choice, you have to think about why, right? And so I think that's important mm -hmm. as well. I, I really like what you said about, you know, every student, you have to spend time really. And that's something I had to learn as I, as I grow, as we're both growing as teachers. We're still young professors. And the fact that every student learns differently and the more experiences you have with different students, figuring out which way they learn and what they respond to. Some people, you, they need more structure. Some people need more encouragement. Um, it, it's, it's a real fascinating real. F I mean, that's the, that's the fun part about being a professor. Cause we can always keep growing and learning. It's important for students to be able to teach themselves. And in moments like this, I, it feels like the student that Lars was talking about was trying to play from the aspect of like, okay, what, uh, what does teacher want to hear? You know, what does my teacher want to hear? Rather than stepping outside of yourself and saying, well, what do I want to sound like? And do I sound like that? And I've run across that a lot with students. I think, I think it's important to be able to describe how you do something and why you do something. So we got an, a five-star review on iTunes from Zach. Thank you very much, Zach. Zach says, how long did it take to get a sound you're actually happy with? Huge thanks to the both of you. You guys are the best and offer a ton of insight from your own careers as well as the people you interview that really helps young musicians such as myself. Well, thank you very much. That is very kind of you to say. Well, thanks, Zach. Well, I'll tell you when I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, uh, I think I have a good sound overall. I'm not always happy with my sound. So I, 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 I say that jokingly, but I think that's, I think that's part of finding your sound is, <laughs> it sounds a little morose, but never being quite satisfied with what you have already and constantly striving to get better. And I think if you adopt that mentality that you are already searching and it will improve, it kind of helps, you know, the problem helps the solution too. Yeah. I, that's, that's a great question. And obviously something that we think about a lot, right? Cause I mean, trombone is, is a sound instrument, right? We're not always playing uh, fireworks and gymnastics. I mean, what makes our instrument special is having a special sound. And that's part of, you know, what will get you a lot of places. But 
what you're saying is is the most important thing. And if you can make your sound add to that, that's that's even better. But you know, as far as developing your sound, I mean, I think Nick and I would agree on it's a combination of a lot of things. First of all, it's it's listening and filling your head with wonderful sounds, being around great players, listening to great recordings, getting that into your subconscious, um, making sure your body isn't getting in the way with, you know, bad posture, tension, uh, making sure your embouchure is set up in a, in a natural way. And, and for me, I think it's, it's really gravitating towards what feels good. You know, you, you gotta, you gotta think about the sound literally has to make you feel good. You know, mm. that that's usually my centering spot. It, letting the air massage the lips and really if it's making you feel good, it's a good chance of making others feel good. And you, and you have to get, get that right. Like, you, you know, when like you play for someone and you can kind of feel when they're really enjoying what you're doing. Yeah. It, well, I like, I want to circle back to that. Make the air massage your lips. Is that, is that a Kitspin thing? No, I think the first person I heard say that was, was Nitsan. Cause I, the first person I heard say it was you actually, you said it to me kind of like, you kind of said it in passing like you did just now. And that, that was like first retreat and that stuck with me. I was like, wow, that's a great way to think about it. And when I'm really fatigued, especially that's one thing that really helps is trying to like focus on just vibration of the lips and really efficient efficiency that yeah, that's another one, like getting down into the brass tacks of like developing a sound. I mean, I, I think, like I said, the quest to have a better sound is kind of the first step. I think a lot of, a lot of young players need to spend more time just slow, really slow playing and thinking about sound because look, we're in the business of making sound first and foremost. So, you know, if you can get, get all around the horn playing Carnival of Venice, that's great. But if you do it with a nasally sound, what's, what's the point? You know, it's got to sound good. You can get, you can get away with a lot of stuff for having a nice sound. I can speak personally for yeah, that. Me too. <laughs> I, did you spend time with the Vernon book growing up? That really helped me conceptualize a lot of things. Oh, you mean the one that I play out of almost every day? Yes. Well, there you go. Yep. I think he does a great job of of really spending time writing about sound and like making you think of adjectives of how you want your sound to be described and stuff like that. Other quick things are, are you, are you making sure you're buzzing in the center of the pitch all the time? Not like kind of around it, but like right in the center where all the overtones are. One of my favorite centering thoughts that Jim talks about, Jim Markey, that I, I love and it's been really helpful for students I found and, and worked really well is is thinking about the three core elements of sound to him. And for him, it's brilliance, warmth, and core. And if you look at it like, you know, like an audio designer, it, it, it's, it's, it's kind of like thinking about the highs, mids, and lows. Right. You know, you want this balance. And when you listen to a sound, everyone hears sounds, right? And you, you know, when you like it and you know, when you don't like it. And I encourage my students to, when they hear a sound, they don't like look at it through that lens and try to figure out what it's lacking. Does it need a little more core? Does it need more color and brilliance on top? Does it need more of the lows and the warmth? And that's been such a quick way to, to get to where I want to be. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a great way of describing it. Yeah, when when I was a student, I was in this kick at one point of whatever room I'd be in, I would I would play these slow scales like seven thirty eight in the morning, and play really slow scales and stop on each note and try to find the maximum resonance. And I had this thought in my head like if if every note I could find the natural frequency of something in this room to vibrate, then I'm really playing with a good sound. I I mean I don't know. 
I, I doubt that's a scientifically backable thing. <laughs> but for me, it just really honed me in on like what I wanted to be doing. I wanted to make the room vibrate with sound, you know? That sounds like a what a trombone superhero name would be or like a character on a video game. Max Resonance. Max Resonance. Yeah, also... At the, around the same time, uh, Joe Alessi was on this kick of, uh, with his students trying, uh, talking about sound, telling them, listen to others and for you describe the sound, the qualities of sound that they have that you like. And I didn't know this was going on. And my friend Kyle Covington walks in my practice room and he's just standing there listening to me play. And he goes, chocolate wave. And then he walks out of the room and I was like, <laughs> And so I was like, what was that about chocolate wave? He goes, that's your sound. You have chocolate wave. <laughs> I was like, okay, Kyle. <laughs> I'll take yeah, it. Would, well, all right. That could be worse. It could be like metallic thunder. I guess that would be worse. <laughs> that could be another superhero, chocolate wave. Cho- chocolate wave. You know, it's one thing we haven't mentioned in regards to sound, Nick. What would that be? Equipment. We, we ha- you notice how we haven't mentioned that. You know, because all this stuff is so much more important. You know, you, you got you to gotta figure all this other stuff out behind the mouthpiece. And then when you're at a really refined state, then you can, I think, in my opinion, start tinkering with stuff. So the practice hangs have been awesome. Yeah. Uh, we're, we were there weekdays at 1 to 2 Eastern time. It's, it's a very low-key thing. We're all on mute. Come join us, tromboneretreat.com slash practice. It's been a really good time. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider leaving us a rating or review on iTunes. If you want to leave a question or topic you'd like us to discuss, we'll answer it on the podcast. Follow us at Trombone Retreat on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and our website, tromboneretreat.com, where you can also join our mailing list. Also, feel free to shoot us an email, tromboneretreat at gmail.com, as we love hearing from you. On Instagrams, follow Nick at BassTrombone444 and myself at JS.Vera. And as always... Don't forget to retreat yourself.